this morning and turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. And we're continuing to pull back the curtain and look, peek in through the scripture of what God did with the old and what God has done with the new and how important that is for us to understand as believers. In fact, the writer of Hebrews challenges us not to stay where we're at spiritually, but to press on in our understanding and our knowledge so we become mature in Christ. And the way you become mature in Christ, it's not depending on how long you've been a Christian, but how much you have been immersed in this book, that the Holy Spirit of God may use it to sanctify you and to show you his will and his understanding of what he has done. And when he does that, we can honestly and truly lift up his voice, lift up his name with our voice and really praise him and know that no one can change your mind based on the word of God where you stand with God. So on the writer's mind has been a central thought in the last couple chapters. In fact, the central thought has been how to have unhindered access to God. How do you do that? That's been the desire of many people who've lived from the beginning. I look at creation, I see a great God has created this. How can I get to know Him? How can I have access to Him? Well, in the Word of God, there were two proper ways in the Old Testament, that a person may have access to God. Under the old system, the first way was through the law. And of course, the law was connected to a second way, and that was to have access to God through the priesthood and the whole sacrificial system. But we saw that there was a real, real problem. And the problem was this, the two proper ways to have access to God were ineffective. In this sense, the law was weak and unable to make anything perfect. Priests were weak, imperfect, sinful, and died. The sacrificial system couldn't make anyone perfect anyway because they had to keep sacrificing over and over and over and over for the sins of people, which never ended. So the bottom line was, up until this point, the law, the priesthood, and, of course, the sacrificial system could not give a person continual access to God and make one right with the Holy God. Couldn't do it. And one of the reasons why is because there's no escaping the human estrangement from God when we commit sin. All the efforts of the priests, all the sacrifices offered could not restore the relationship with God completely. Couldn't happen. So why, why did God do it that way? Why have we been saying in Scripture that God's going to replace the old with the new? Well... Why was it necessary for the old system to be replaced at all by the new system? Well, as I said last time, 
the Levitical priesthood was lacking. And that's what necessitated a different and greater priesthood. The institution itself of priestly service, by its very design, was lacking. It could not achieve completion. It could not achieve the completion that God intended, always intended. God didn't create us for nothing. He created us to have fellowship with him, right? So in God's intention, it's always been that we would be made complete and perfect so we can enter into his holy and perfect presence and have good worship time with him and enjoy each other. That's what God intended for us. So believers really need a priest that, who can give them constant access to God and make them perfect, make them acceptable before a holy and just God. The Old Testament method of providing for God's people did not produce holiness. It didn't perfect anyone eternally. So before us today, on this Lord's Day, in this passage of Scripture, We have three convincing comparisons, three convincing contrasts that will point out to us and show us how inferior the Old Testament was and how the New Testament or the new system is so much superior because of the person who's central to that system. And the main purpose person in this section is God's word is Christ himself. He is the new priest who brings in the new way. In fact, this section of scripture, if meditated upon and understood, will cause you to be more secure in your salvation. Will cause you to love and worship the Lord more regularly. It will cause you to do that. If you're listening, if you're running it through the Scripture and your mind and you begin to grasp what's going on here, it will definitely give you a security you never had before. Especially to those who may think that they could lose their salvation once they have it, if they had it, in the first place. Well, there are three things, three contrasts here, and the first one comes under really the exercise of Jesus having a more excellent ministry than all the other priests that have gone before him. And so the first contrast is between the weakness of the old system, which I covered a little bit already, and its law and the power of the new system. That's what we're going to look at, and then we're going to look at the other ones in this section. Let's pray, though, uh, before our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for your people. Lord, this morning, teach us, encourage us by your word. Help us to understand the greatness of salvation that we have. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just build it into our understanding so we can rest more secure in our salvation because our our salvation is all of you and none of us And so, Lord, we want to praise you and thank you for that now. Help us to see what you've done and give you glory. In Christ, I pray. Amen. So look at verse number 18 and the beginning of verse number 19 
And we see the contrast between that. What I mean by the contrast is we're holding up two things opposite to each other, and we're looking at the differences, and we're seeing the weaknesses and strengths of one and the strength of another one. And that's what's happening here in this section of Scripture. And so he wants us to know that. And so we see the weakness of the old and its laws and the power of the new, where it says in verse number 18, on the one hand, that's how he packages it, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. And then the beginning of verse number 19, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, why was the old law that supported the Levitical priesthood set aside? Well, because it was weak. It was profitless. That the Levitical priesthood failed to bring completion. The law made nothing perfect, but instead, it doesn't mean the law was bad. Don't get that impression. The law is good because it comes divinely from God. What the law did instead is pave the way to something better. It set us up. It exposes our sin to show us we truly are sinful before a holy God. And then it kind of leads us to the edge of the cross. It doesn't take us fully to the cross. It doesn't do what Jesus did on the cross. See, so what it does, it paves the way to something better. That is something that would bring completion, something that would bring finality to our salvation. It was weak in the sense that it was only a shadow. If you look over to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 5, Notice what it says there. It says, who served a copy and shadow of heavenly things. That's 8.5 in your Bibles. And then chapter 10, verse 1, for the law senses it, is, it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. So the Bible is telling us, listen, it is pointing the sacrificial system the priesthood and the law is pointing forward to the very substance to the very reality in a sense those things were signposts when you follow them it points to the substance of or the reality of the destination in which god wants to take us it was pointing to that end so to cling to the shadow to cling to something that was incomplete, to cling to something that didn't have the full substance to it would be to miss Christ. When people stay in a religious system that is bankrupt of these things, they miss Christ. They can be religious from the bottom of their feet to the top of their head. And if they don't know this, they will miss Christ. In fact, here the pastoral concern is that these Jews would not go back to Judaism. They wouldn't go back to their very structured and ordered religious system. Remember, they're under persecution now, and so therefore they want to kind of feel like, maybe I, should, maybe I shouldn't have left in the first place my old religious system. And he is saying to them, you are going to go from something better to something good. You are going to go from something better or to something worse. 
Something that's not going to take you where God intends to take you. So the pastoral concern is that professors of Christ might go back to something inferior, something temporary, something partial, when in Christ there is better hope. You know, I I think of myself coming out of a religious system uh, that, you know, there's a temptation sometimes and there has been people who have gone back to it after they say they became believers. But I look at my religious system that I came from and I know that that system is bankrupt because it does not teach the full counsel of God. It doesn't teach that salvation is of God and it must be Christ who perfects me. All my good works and good deeds can do nothing to earn salvation. It must be all of Christ. So if I go back there, if anyone goes back to their religious system and leaves Christ, they will miss Christ. They will miss him. And so here's the warning for us. And there's going to be another warning in chapter 10. But he is saying to them, listen, this is my concern. Why would you leave Christ who is the better? Why would you leave him? And so that's where he begins to lead the argument. In verse number 19, the second part of the verse, it shows the strength of the new. That, and the, really the primary place of that the old has failed. It says, on the other hand, in verse number 19, there is the bringing in, notice what it says, of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the setting aside of the Levitical priesthood and law actually provided and pointed to a better hope by means of which we draw near to God. And there's the point that God removed the shadow and substituted it with the substance. What God brought in was an objective hope, a hope that we can actually see in Christ. We see, when we look at Christ, we see the Father. When we look at Christ, we see God. When we look at Christ, we see everything that God is that makes our salvation and our doctrine objective. It is a hope God wants us to rest in for eternal life. The better basis of hope, of course, is the expiating blood of our great high priest that even the blood of bulls and goats in the old testament had no power to remove sin but its connection with christ's blood to remove sin when it was going to happen so the shadow by itself can do nothing it was wholly dependent on christ it was wholly dependent on his blood which was yet to be shed in the old testament it was looking forward to the cross we're looking back at the cross but when the reality came to which the shadow was pointing and christ finally shed his blood the shout the shadow gradually faded away having served its purpose the levitical priesthood and the law that guided it and the sacrifices that were daily offered for were, were set aside because a better hope had come. And that hope was this, the finished work of Christ, that Jesus Christ deals with our sins as a covenant victim. And 
He brings us to God as our great high priest. Who can do that? So the bottom line for this contrast is Jesus can do what the old priesthood never could have done. He gives us access to God. That's the point. He gives us access to God. That is a great truth that gives us great security in our salvation. A second thing that we see in this text in chapter 7 is that Jesus mediates a far better covenant. In verse 20, the second contrast is between the old covenant that can be dissolved and the new covenant which can never be dissolved. Look what it says in verse 20. It says, Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, and then verse 21, for they indeed became priests without an oath. I explained a little before about the oath, but let me just uh, remind you that it's saying here they became priests. The Old Testament priests became priests without a sworn statement by God. See, God never swore to Aaron or any priest that his priesthood would be forever. He never, he never swore that. He never said that anywhere. God never swore that to any priest in Scripture. There was a law backing them, that was sure, but it was only temporary. There was never a sworn statement with an irrevocable force to it. That's why in the Old Testament, take, let's take our Bibles and turn to a few passages. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 8 and 9, while you're turning there, in chapter 28 of that book, it says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother, speaking to Moses, and his sons with them from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. And then he names his sons. But look at chapter 29 of Exodus, verse 8. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. Verse 9, you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. And you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So there it says in Scripture that it was surely an ordained priesthood by God, guided by the law. God definitely instituted it. He gave this permanent set up so people can have access to God, so people can come and get their sins forgiven and then go on and worship and serve God within the camp of Israel, learning to honor God. But I want you to notice back in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 21, there is something else he says there in the contrast. Remember the contrast here is between the old covenant that can be dissolved and the new covenant that could never be dissolved. And notice in verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 21 of Hebrews, in the middle of the verse it says, but he with an oath. I love those little buts in Scripture because it really is pointing. This is the way it is, but, you know, when there's a but, there's always something else coming, right? It never just stops there. Well, this is a good but. This is not one of those bad buts. All right? This one says, but he with an oath. Through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, where does that come from? Psalm what? 110, right? 
verse number four. He is quoting a psalm here. We've, he's been dealing with this particular psalm, and he brings it up again because it is so important. Now, why can't the new covenant be dissolved? That's coming through Christ. Well, Scripture, scripture gives us two solid, solid reasons. Here's the first one. Because it is confirmed by the Father's sworn word. Verse 21, again, the definiteness of the oath the Lord has sworn. Now, if God swears something, is it going to hold up? Does God even have to swear anything? No, he doesn't, but he does on this particular matter. And then he gives the the reliability of the oath where he says, and will not change his mind. So, see, the phrase here is very, very strong. The Lord has sworn with an irrevocable force and couples it with the statement of future non-repentance, meaning this. It's actually the word, the root word is metanoia. We get the word repentance from, and it's really saying that God is not going to repent from this particular oath. He's not going to change his mind. It's very strong just to let people know, just in case they're having a problem, that, oh, maybe God will change his mind on it. God is saying, no, it'll never happen. This will not, nothing will change my mind on this. So with the negative, it means that he will not repent of this matter. Kent Hughes, a commentary, calls this God's self-imposed, eternally binding oath. That's what it is. See, the reason the Lord God himself is being so emphatic and unmovable on this matter is that when Christ, The Son of God comes. He'll be a priest forever. And there'll be no priesthood like it. He'll be better than anything else. So the Father swears the eternality of Jesus' priesthood, and that is final. Aren't you glad that the Father can't go back on his word? Aren't you glad that he established this oath a long time ago? And he had you in mind when he did it. Not just Israel. The new covenant, right? And in the Old Testament, Jews and Gentiles, all humanity that would come to him, he had you in mind when he made that oath that he would not change his mind about what he was going to do on this matter. And it was not going to be by the old system that anyone could be eternally saved and made complete. It will be by another, a new system, a new covenant. But see, why can't this new covenant be dissolved? Not only because it is confirmed by the Father's sworn word. And of course, over in chapter 8, if you want to take a glance over there, in verse number 7, I'm not going to go into it now but this is the new covenant he 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 actually quotes it from jeremiah for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with them he says behold days are coming says the lord when i will effect a new covenant with those of the house of israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant which i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to lead them out of egypt the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. See, there's the new covenant. That is what we are under. That is, gives us great security as a believer to know that my salvation is secure in what God has done. But look over again to chapter 7, verse 22. There's a second solid reason why the new covenant can never be dissolved, because it is guaranteed by Jesus himself. Look what it says. So much more, so much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee. your, Your version may read surety of a better covenant. All right, meaning that, listen, the word may mean bond or bail or collateral, some kind of guarantee that a promise will be fulfilled. So the very oath the Father made, Jesus guarantees. And who, how does he guarantee it? Himself. He puts himself up as collateral. That's what he does. He's the security. There will, there will be no annulment of this new and better covenant based on the sworn word of the Father and the guarantee of the Son. So on a scale of good or better, the new covenant is better because we have, we actually as believers have a superior high priest. One who has come into the world as the God-men and satisfies God's personal wrath against our sin completely meeting it and totally putting it away. See, that's what the new covenant said it would do. And it will do that and accomplish it completely. So see, again, here's the contrast that, see, the old had to be put away because of this reason. It's always been God's plan that it would happen. It had to be put away. But listen, if it's guaranteed by the son and because it was sworn by the father, then it has to take place just as God says so aren't you glad that jesus guarantees the promise by offering himself as the collateral the down payment the one who says listen and of course he does that by putting himself on the cross so what follows is this look at verse 23 and this brings me to the third contrast that jesus secures a more permanent priesthood the third contrast is between the temporary and the permanent. Now, this becomes really important here in Scripture that there is an interesting observation before us that identifies the further exhausting nature of the Old Testament priesthood. That the great leveler that was there in the priesthood that we feel today is this great level, leveler that pr- prevents the continuing of the priesthood. Now, what am I talking about? Look at verse number 23. It says, for the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. So it goes from the greater number, the many, to the one. It goes from the large amount of priests from the institution of Aaron's priesthood to the second temple, and there's going to be a lot of priests in that time frame but it goes to many, to the one. They become priests, but are prevented by death from remaining in their office. 
Again, let's take our Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 20. Just one verse, verse 28. I think you'll get the point in this verse of Scripture. What the problem was, it is our problem too. In Numbers 20, 28, again, Moses is coming to the time where Aaron is growing old. He's near death, but the priesthood has to continue. So remember, it had to be within the line of Aaron, so Aaron's son steps up. And you see in Numbers 20, 28, after Moses has stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. Look what it says. Aaron what? Aaron what? He died. He died there on the mountaintop, it says. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. What a recurring theme in the Old Testament. Got to go up person dies comes back down continue the service right it's 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 a a monotonous type of cycle you have aaron then you have eliezer then you have phineas and then you have on and on and on in fact the historian josephus counted 83 priests from aaron to this to the destruction of the temple the second temple in 70 a.d when it was all over all the sacrificial system was over at that time but you know what it said on about every one of them and they all what? Died. They all died. We, we understand death well. They were all stopped by death. Death is the great leveler in the book of Ecclesiastes. But really the great leveler in Ecclesiastes, a greater leveler than death is judgment. That it's appointed once for man to die and then what? The judgment So see, death may stop the priesthood. It may stop it from its succession. But nonetheless, that's the point. Someone is going to come in. And the great news here is that Jesus needed no succession of priests to follow him because our great high priest defeated death and defeated Satan, and he lives on by his atoning death. He defeats Satan and death. He already dealt with that subject in chapter 2, verse 14. It said, where it says, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So see, the power of Satan has been rendered inoperative. Christ has made an atonement for sin, fully satisfying God. The fear of dying that had long plagued humanity and still does has been settled by Christ by his own death and resurrection. So see, Jesus remains a priest forever and it did not need to pass to another. So you don't need many priests. He's the one. Look at verse 24. It says this, but Jesus, there's that but again. But Jesus, on the other hand, notice, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So Jesus, on his part, remains forever and has an unchangeable priesthood, that Christ's priesthood lasts for, the word there forever, eons. Eons and eons and eons. It has a vital life force to it that never ends. So Jesus is superior by virtue of his permanence as high priest. How can I go back to the old system? 
How can I leave Christ? How can I jump ship if I know this about him? If I have this revelation of what he's done, how can I do that? I can't do it. So see, with that building, you would see that, then what are the benefits to believers? What, kind of, what do we derive from the work of Christ in this way? Christ exercising a more excellent ministry. Jesus mediating a better covenant. Jesus is securing a more permanent priesthood. How does that affect me? What kind of things do I derive from that? Well, look at verse 25. Here's the first thing I derive from it. He saves his children completely. Verse 25, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. There it is. You may have there in the old King James to the utmost, right? To the utmost. Well, actually, it is the word forever. He saves forever, right? But who does he save? He saves those who draw near to God through Christ. He didn't save everybody. He saves in this way, that our covenant victim, Jesus, deals with our sin, and as our high priest, again, he brings us to God. So the Old Testament saved no one based on its ministration alone. It was always pointing forward to the Messiah, to the high priest, and it was always drawing its saving power from Christ himself, even though Christ had not yet been crucified. So without Christ, everyone would die in their sins. Isn't that what John says? You're either going to die in your sins or you're going to die in the what? In the Lord. There's no other way to die. So see, the confidence that I have in this passage of Scripture based on what Christ has done for me as the high priest is that he's able to save me forever. And what? Give me access to God forever. That's what he does. That's what makes my salvation secure. That's what gives me strength and boldness to go on. It has far-reaching implications, the cross of Jesus Christ. It reaches out to the most heinous of sinners. If you think about it for a moment, people who are adulterers, people who are homosexuals, people who gossip, embezzlers, liars, those who hate good and hate God, idolaters, malicious persons, perverted persons of all kinds, people trying to establish their own righteousness to be accepted by God, murderers, or whatever brand of sinning someone has been committing, if they come to God, Through Jesus Christ, the high priest, in repentance of faith, God will provide to that sinner absolute and tonal and eternal salvation, and they will have an advocate with the Father and access to God. That's what Jesus Christ will do for those who have not come, and that's what he has done to those who have come. But there's no other way to come. You have to come through him to get to the Father. There's no other way. There's not many roads to God. There's not many ways to God. There is only one. So he saves his children completely. But there's a second benefit that you and I derive from the work of Christ. Look at verse 25. He continually intercedes for his children since he always lives to make intercession for them. For us, Christ is able to completely save 
and he intercedes based on his whole mediatorial work, his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus is living and active in the presence of his Father for us. His intercession is made for those coming to God. Come on. The Lord's praying for us right now. Wherever you're at in your life, He's praying for you. Not only does God save us, He keeps us saved. He holds on to us. He's pleading the blood of Christ for your benefit before the Father. And already we know the priest, this high priest that we have, knows our needs, the deepest needs we have. He's gone through it all to the extent that we will never go through it all. He knows exactly what you need. And he's praying for you. And you know what? Any prayer that comes before the Father by Christ is offered up perfectly and it will do exactly what Christ asked for. And one of those that I believe one of the prayers, even though the specifics are not here about that, is that he maintains your salvation. He pleads you as one of his children before the Father. And you know what? Do we, do we get any example of that in Scripture? I think we do. In John chapter 17, a few passages of Scripture, verse number 14, he says this. This is the high priestly prayer in John 17, where he says uh, in verse 14, I ask on their behalf, excuse me, verse number nine, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but but of those who you have given me, for they are yours. And then down to verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Brethren, that's you too. The Lord just prayed for you. The Lord just pleaded our case before God. He intercedes for his children And you know what? He doesn't get tired. He doesn't go to sleep. He doesn't take a coffee break. He doesn't know. He knows at all times what's happening in your life. And he sees it, and he's protecting and holding his children. Why? So they make it to the end, and they receive complete and eternal salvation in Christ. Why? That was always God's plan. So, If I know this, how can I go back? How can I go to some lesser religious system? How can I go to a system of works? I cannot. I cannot. You cannot do that. God will hold you through the thick trials of life. He will hold you. He's praying for you. He will get you through it. It is not the end of the world. He's perfecting you here. He's sanctifying you here by the word of God. He's sanctifying you through troubles and tribulations and circumstances. He's sanctifying you. He's perfecting you even now, making you ready for the day that you'll enter his presence and you'll be perfect completely. 
That's what he is doing. God hadn't left you at all. He is there interceding for you. Well, in all that, somebody may ask, is he even qualified to do this? This man, Jesus, is he he qualified to do it? He's just a man, isn't he? He's just a son of a carpenter. That's all he is. He's only a prophet, right? See, people minimize Jesus, where he becomes just one of the guys that really has done nothing, just in a long line of other guys, other prophets or, or whatever it is. When you read the scriptures, that's not what you see at all. You see that Christ is exalted above everything, above everyone, above every prophet, above above every priest, above every king. There's no one higher than Christ. He is exalted and he is seated at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for the saints. Well, let's go back to and finish this up in Hebrews chapter 7. Well, see, the emphasis now is put upon Jesus as the one who is spiritually fit for this great office. There is no one more fit for this office than Jesus himself. Verse 26, his fitness is seen in his character of Hebrews 7, for it it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. And notice what it says, holy, innocent, and undefiled. Why is this here? Because all the other high priests were not this. If you... Get back to the sons of Aaron. You know what happens with Phinehas and his brother, right? They're committing sexual sin outside the, outside the, in the courtyard there of the temple, the tabernacle. It, it, see, the priests are sinners. They're, they're, they're going to die, and they're not wholly set apart to God in their mind and their heart. Jesus Christ is, and it's, that's why it says that he's holy, meaning set apart to God, Godward. He is innocent, meaning that he's blameless manward, no one can bring an, an, an accusation against them and make it stick. And then he is undefiled. That means he's pure and unstained inside. So outside, inside, toward God, toward man, he is the perfect character, the perfect one, that Jesus is the one who is actually and perfectly holy and perfectly and completely set apart to his Father and to the will of God, which is the of the triune God, of which he is part. And then, secondly, in verse 26, his fitness is seen as in his position. Notice what it says, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. In other words, he is without evil. He is without any sin. Remember, Jesus Christ is without sin, like, unlike all the other priests that have gone before, and that he has been exalted above the heavens. He's passed in through the heavens. It already said in the book of hebrews that means that he is in a place that he is beyond reach as far as the assault of the enemy no other high priest could have done that and then there's a third thing his fitness is seen in the sacrifice verse 27 look what it says who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of his people because this He did once for all when he offered up himself. There is the guarantee. There is the offer of himself once for all, not continuing the offering one time and then 
this sacrifice becomes eternal, and that's how he ends it in verse 28. It says, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath that has been what? Promised by the Father and confirmed by an oath and then guaranteed by the Son. It says, which came after the law appoints a son. And it says here, made perfect forever. So brethren, if you doubt your salvation after coming to Christ, you don't understand these passages. These passages are to clear, clear the clouds away to clear the doubt away. Now it also may show you that maybe you're not saved at all. Maybe you've never come to the high priest, Jesus Christ, to ask for forgiveness of your sins and to be saved. And maybe you need to do that today. That may be the very thing God may be speaking to you about this morning, that you can't put it off. There's nowhere else to go. That you're either going to die in your sins or you're going to die in Christ. I want to die in Christ, right? But I want to know I... I die in christ and the only way i know that is by the word so the word exalts christ to a place where jesus is superior by virtue of his excellent perfect person so this message should make you more secure in your salvation it should give you a love a more of a love for the lord jesus christ because of what he did on your behalf it should cause you to worship the lord for the great things he has done, it should cause you to be more faithful to pray, knowing God is praying for you to bring your request to him. Yet maybe this is where we fail the most, is that we're not interceding for each other and acting like priests, the priesthood of believers, and praying in that way. We fail greatly when we don't do that, and Satan takes advantage of us when we don't. I would like to admonish you to begin to set aside time not only in your daily time of devotion, but to have time of prayer, but to make it an, a, a prayer request to meet together for the, with the brethren and pray and intercede for one another before the throne of God. We have access to that throne. And, of course, another thing that I believe that when a message like this is understood, it will give you boldness to witness give you boldness to witness to sinners it will cause you to open up your mouth and let the mysteries of god loose because you know you're convinced not only of your own salvation but jesus is what people need it's not going to be through governments or politics or any of those things that people hear the truth especially the truth of salvation is only by the preach message of jesus christ so i pray that god would encourage you today with these truths and that you would have plenty to think about this coming week even in the evaluation of yourself spiritually and of what god wants you to do as far as your service to him And then, of course, about your prayer life. How is it? How's your intercession for others? I pray that that would be one area that we would all desire to be more faithful to. Amen? That God may use us there. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you again for the awesomeness of your word. It is truly encouraging to see that there is nothing better than you. There's nothing more exalted than you. There's no one more truthful than you. There's no one more perfect in their character than you. And so, Lord, we come and we bow in worship. We bow, Lord, thanking you that you intercede on our behalf. Thanking you, Lord, that our salvation has been guaranteed by you and has been, of course, met with an oath by the Father. Thank you, Lord, that it can't be taken away. So, Lord, prevent us from looking back. Prevent us from stepping aside. But keep us on the straight and narrow and enable us, Lord, to be faithful, knowing, Lord, that you are going to complete salvation in us. From the day we confessed and believed, to the day you take us to heaven or you come back again, enable us by your spirit to be faithful. And Lord, we'll give you the glory and the honor for all that you will accomplish in our life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.